0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This is the way the New York Times is setting the scene for tonight's primetime hearing by the January 6th committee. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol plans to return to primetime on Thursday to deliver what amounts to a closing argument in the case it has made against former President Donald Trump, accusing the former commander in chief of dereliction of duty for failing to call off the assault carried out in his name. To do so, the panel will put two military veterans, Representative Elaine Luria, Democrat of Virginia, and Representative Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois, front and center in leading its presentation and questioning. Ms. Luria, the only Democrat on the panel involved in a competitive re-election race, served in the Navy for more than 20 years and achieved the rank of commander. Mr. Kinzinger is an Air Force veteran who flew missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. One of the witnesses they plan to question in person, Matthew Pottinger, who was a deputy national security advisor under Mr. Trump and the highest ranking White House official to resign on January 6, 2021, is a Marine Corps veteran. And our guest today is our good friend Adam Kinzinger. So uh, welcome back on the podcast. And so you're ready for the big day?
1: Yeah, I am. It's good to be with you. You know, look, it's this has been a lot, a lot of hearings, right? Every every time we go into a hearing, you're kind of crossing your fingers. You don't know, because when you know the material so well, it's like, well, how are people going to take it? This is obviously blown away people's expectations, including our own. So yeah, I'm ready for tonight, and uh, it's going to be in prime time, and you know, hopefully people can look at this with an open mind and walk away thinking like, holy crap, we can never do that as a country again. So what will
0: we learn tonight about what happened on January 6th that we don't know now? What are we going to see tonight?
1: Well, I think, look, from what you know, like what did the president do during that 187 minutes from, you know, leaving the ellipse till he finally put out his go home tweet? He didn't do anything. You're not going to learn anything new on that front. Mm -hmm. But you're going to learn a lot new evidence to prove that he didn't do anything. There's going to be a lot of discussion about the president's mindset. So, you know, there's been this, like, kind of push by his allies to say, well, he just didn't know or, you know, he didn't know the violence was happening or whatever. We can disprove that. And you're going to see basically the number of people around him. You know, we, we talked about the pressure campaign against, you know, Vice President Pence, the pressure campaign against Donald Trump, he, he actually showed some pretty heroic strength in resisting the pressure campaign to get him to call off the attack. And uh, why did he do that? Why was he so uh, in- intent on not calling back the attackers? Well, I, I think get into his mindset. This is something, Charlie, I got to tell you that I'd say even in the last few months, I've really kind of gotten an emotional feel for it as we begin putting together this thing. Imagine yourself, and to all of your listeners, imagine yourself sitting in the Oval Office watching the Capitol be attacked. It's like, what would you do? What, like, You would be like crawling out of your skin to go on TV or to tweet, let's say, even just tweet. It would be like, get the F out of the Capitol, right? What did the president tweet? Stay peaceful. Remain peaceful. So we're going to learn a lot of that stuff and get into his mind, which is a scary place to be. Uh, because I think it's important for people to understand that this wasn't just some, you know, poor man that was misled or betrayed by Vice President Pence. This is somebody who knew exactly what he was doing.
0: So one of the key moments of January 6th was when he put out that tweet that was targeting Mike Pence. And uh, this was one of the big triggers for some people in the White House, including Matthew Pottinger, to say that that's it, that's done. Is it, Will there be any doubt after tonight that Donald Trump knew that Pence was in danger, that the protest had turned violent by the time he sent that tweet?
1: Absolutely, no doubt. There can be no doubt at, you know, the fact that the president, in what he has seen going on, in what he's feeling, which is like, look, his last chance was to to stay in power because all he cares about is himself. His last chance was, uh, you know, Vice President Pence somehow throwing this thing magically back to the to the states and going into the Supreme Court, and then he sees this mob attacking. And you can imagine, put yourself in the mind of a narcissist who the only thing is to stay in power. It's kind of like, let's see where this goes. Let's see what happens here. Let's see where this goes. So he puts out this tweet that fuels, and we can show how that directly fuels the anger of people that are like, look, they are following the marching orders of Donald Trump. I think sometimes people can forget how often, you know, if you were a, a MAGA head, how often you're refreshing your Twitter app to see when Donald Trump is tweeting. And that's what they were doing the whole time during this attack. Did he tell us to go? Is he telling us to stop? And, uh, and you can see in this a child who is angry that Pence didn't do it, and he's like, let's see where this goes. And, and we're going to fill in even more color into that in terms of just kind of the emotion of people that day.
0: Well, let's talk about the concept of dereliction of duty. There's an op-ed piece in the New York Times this morning uh, from a group of retired generals and admirals uh, who uh, argue that Trump's actions on January 6th were a dereliction of duty, which is going to be one of your themes tonight. And 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 they write uh, the inquiry by the your committee has produced many startling findings, but none to us more alarming than the fact that while rioters tried to thwart the peaceful transfer of power and ransack the Capitol on January six, two thousand twenty one, the president and commander in chief Donald Trump abdicated his duty to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So talk to me a little bit about this this concept of, of dereliction of duty. Is that a violation of the presidential oath? Is it a criminal act? Is it something that is indictable? What, what is dereliction of duty, and what are the consequences of that?
1: Yeah, so the criminal side of it and the consequences side is something I can't answer. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think the country has really been in this position before. If there was a, a dereliction of duty by a president, usually impeachment you know, came into effect or a president resigned. This is a case where the president has basically accepted no responsibility. So I don't know the answer to what the criminal side is. But I do think it's important, even aside from criminal, and and, and there very well may be an aspect to it. But let's look at this as a country, okay? The one thing that we have You know, I've talked before about the only way democracy survives is if we know that, you know, we vote and it counts and we live with the results. That's it. But the other thing is, like, in order for any law to work, in order for any country to work, particularly in a democracy where, you know, we're not using the military to implement things, you have to honor your oath. The oath is the thing that matters. And, Charlie, there's a reason that they made me take an oath to the Constitution that the 700,000 people I represent did not have to take, at least in this capacity. Because the Founding Fathers knew there would be a moment, they didn't necessarily know when or what, there would be a moment where leaders are supposed to look to that higher thing they swore an oath to than the pressure of their constituents. So like, quick aside, when people say on impeachment, no, my, my district didn't want me to vote for impeachment. I say, well, maybe that's true but you they didn't swear an oath to the constitution so they have a right to say we don't think you should vote for impeachment when you swear that oath though in the capacity you do you lose your right when it comes to defending that constitution that has to be that and so what you see in this is the oath matters we can implement a new law i could, let's say mm-hmm. i do a new law that says you know the vice president can never you know change the results of an election whatever it is none of that matters unless the second and third order people that enforce that follow their oath. If the Supreme Court says something, the only thing that puts that into effect is that we all just recognize that that is now the law of the land. If we all just say, well, what army is the Supreme Court going to enforce that with? Then this whole thing falls apart. And that's kind of what Donald Trump is doing. He is sitting there with a duty to defend the Constitution, which doesn't just include the executive branch. It includes and it particularly includes the legislative branch, which is the will of the people, and he watches as you know Rome burns and does absolutely nothing. If that is not a dereliction of duty, if it is not a dereliction of duty to watch a mile away a branch of government burn, knowing that you could call it off, then frankly we ought to get rid of the term and we ought to just get rid of the oath because if that isn't a violation, there is nothing that is.
0: So you're going to be focusing on this 187 minutes that he sat in the White House um, while all of this was was going on. And based on things that have already been reported, he spent most of the time watching television. Is that correct? So so we pretty much knew what he saw. Right. I mean, and um, I I saw one report, you know, the committee is going to be using news coverage, among other visuals, to show what people, you know, outside the Capitol, including Donald Trump sitting in in the White House watching TV, knew about what was going on in real time. I mean, that that is going to be uh, relatively, I would think, straightforward to establish. This is what was being shown. We know that the president was watching this. So you will be able to establish what the president knew when, when he knew it. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, it is. Now, don't put it past some of our friends to be able to just completely still, sure. you know, come up with a reason. But yeah, if, if, you know, plenty of eyewitnesses say it was this news channel that was on His television, he was watching it. And we can point to different times when tweets came out and what was on the news prior, post, and after. Uh, You know, that's important because I got to tell you, if anybody really wants to argue that maybe the president was sitting in the dining room not watching the TV, (laughs) like that was on all about him, like, okay, fine, believe that. But I think people with, you know, true sanity that understand how this man thinks knows that he's going to be glued to the television. So, You know, if people say he didn't know there was violence, which is, by the way, just absolutely asinine to imagine the president of the United States wouldn't know there was violence, but fine, let's say that. Well, we can show exactly what xyz news station was saying about that so he must have had the volume off and not looked at the tv ever which we know is out of his character so tell me about this
0: blooper reel the blooper reel of uh, trump struggling to condemn the rioters reports are that uh, the committee will be airing outtakes from uh, trump's post-capital riot video address where where he was uh, apparently reluctant to condemn his supporters for their actions what are we going to see there
1: yeah, I, I, again, I, I was unfortunate that that leaked out, mm. but it did, and so I'll just say this: it, it, it's an interesting watch, and it's not about <laughs> it, it's not about the actual bloopers. The you know, mm. it, it's about what is the president's mindset the day after January sixth. What is what is the president thinking? What is what is his thought? You know, and and I think that's what's going to be important for people to see. So I, I won't say much more than that, except to okay. say that I think it's just interesting to get into the mind of the president at that moment. So,
0: what's going on with the Secret Service texts? I mean, this is yeah. a r- remarkable story. Um, we the Washington Post uh, Carol Lening reporting. The Secret Service watchdog knew in February the texts had been purged. What do we know? And do you really think that, that that they're gone?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we don't know much, and we were brought into this as a committee just a couple weeks ago. We had been dealing with some Secret Service radio channel stuff, you know, that we were we were getting the recordings from, and. You know some of which you'll be able to hear tonight. And as you well know, the IG came to us, the DHS IG, and said, we have been unable to get these texts. Mm -hmm. And it's like, look, the record's keeping, by far, you should save your texts. Secondarily, on one of the biggest days in Secret Service history, with the exception of like 9-11, you'd think they'd be pretty concerned about like, hey, we need to preserve this stuff. Now, they're very well... I want to be clear, very well may not be any nefarious activity Mm -hmm. behind this. It may just be like incompetence or, you know, something along that line. Like, hey, we don't, whatever, the IG is the IG. Nobody likes the IG. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, we we need answers. And, And the weird thing about it is, so, you know, the IG came in and talked to us. The Secret Service put out a statement saying, it's all BS what the IG said. We've given them all the text. And the only things we've lost were, you know, not relative relevant. So we sent a a subpoena like, cool, just give us those texts. And then I think Secret Service put out a statement, something to the effect of, yep, we're going to participate 100% with what the committee wants. We'll reveal those texts. So I was under the assumption, honestly, Charlie, that by right. Tuesday we'd end up with like thousands of texts. They just mm-hmm. didn't want to give to the IG. They gave us one, one text message total and then said that's all we have and kind of sheepishly went away. So we're we're figuring out next steps on that. Best case scenario just for government purposes, best case scenario it was just high incompetence on that. Worst case scenario it's a cover up and uh we're going to find out the answer on that, but it's it's weird. It's certainly very weird.
0: Well, speaking of the secret service, you know, among the more extraordinary Bits of testimony from uh, Cassidy Hutchinson was her description of what happened in that car between former President Trump and Secret Service agents. And then, of course, there was uh, some blowback from folks who were saying that, you know, the Secret Service agents denied that uh, Trump, you know, had physically manhandled them. Where are we at on this? Because as far as I can tell, no, I mean, have has anyone from the Secret Service come forward and been willing to go under oath to challenge that no. uh, that account?
1: Nope. And this is unfortunate because I got to use a few minutes of my hearing tonight to talk about this because, okay, I mean, the whole, you know, scrap in the limo obviously, it's very fantastical and it was important. You know, she had just said that she had heard this from somebody. Right. So the MAGA folks and the right wing media went out and just started unleashing on her credibility. And that's just angering because this is not a woman that is you know super excited to go out and trash her former boss that she you know believed in up until not that long ago and uh, lose all her friends and you know be known as a anti-maga person or anything this is somebody that just felt compelled to so tonight you know we're gonna play some testimony from people that in essence confirms really the limo incident and you huh. know and just says like look there was we know that there was some heated stuff going on in the limo and You know, so they can they keep coming out and saying, you know, Cassidy this, Cassidy that. They find little side things, but nobody has come in to refute her. And just as you have said, nobody has come in from Secret Service on the record, under oath, and refuted what she has said. There's been anonymous sources. That's it.
0: Huh. So you will be playing testimony that uh, essentially corroborates her story.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: So since this process has begun and the hearings have begun— have there been any surprises for you or what has surprised you the most that you have seen and or learned?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Look, (laughs) this is going to sound funny, but it's true. What surprised me the most is just how effective they've been. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. you get, I I got very kind of, oh, what's the word? I guess just cynical, right? As you're going into this. Yeah. Jaded. We know all this stuff. There's so much that is like leaked out. I mean, I think you've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. If you could imagine all the stuff from this committee that has leaked out, which has been a major frustration, by the way, hmm. had we been able to keep all that in and just be like un unlo- like here, you get a scandal. You get a scandal, right? Like just unleashing this stuff, it would be even bigger. So I was like pretty, I was pretty down on the fact that a lot of the information we have has been out there. But the thing I came to realize is, still, even though people may know pieces of this stuff, the vast majority of Americans don't know the whole story. They don't know about the stuff leading up to January 6th. They don't know about post-January 6th. And that was my aha moment is on, you know, some of those first hearings where you start to tell that early story and you kind of see people's eyes wide. And it's like, okay, yeah, I guess my familiarity with this is like, because I've been studying this now for a year, Uh, that is very different than other people's who are now hearing some of this for the first time. So that's been my biggest surprise is just how effective it is. I've had, I mean, look, I've had people, uh, a good friend of mine that said, you know, hey, his dad was ultra MAGA, never, you know, ever considered a flaw in Donald Trump. After my hearing with uh, DOJ was like, I'm done Mm -hmm. with Trump, you know, I'm done with him. I didn't know any of this. So is it anecdotal? Yeah. Is it massive shifts in the base? No, but it's some. And I think that, that'll make a difference. And in history over time, like I said, I really believe in five years, there's not going to be a single person that'll ever admit to having supported Donald Trump. That's my hope, at least. Well, and it is the
0: cumulative effect of, of all of this. You know, and and, and again, we, we've talked about this before. This is one of those scandals that if you were all learning it all at the same time it would blow your mind. But as you point out, for millions of Americans, this is new to them. This yeah. is new to them. And it is it is this cumulative way. And I think the committee has done a very, very effective job, and I've said this many times now, of featuring people from within Trump's own orbit. I mean, the call is coming from within the House. The the most damaging testimony has come from people from Trump world itself. So it looks on the outside as if, and this is kind of remarkable given the state of our politics, that there are two Republicans on the committee, you and Liz Cheney, and it, it seems like you're working together and that there is a rather disciplined Plan. I mean, behind closed doors, are you you know throwing ketchup against the wall or anything, or is that I me, mean, Are you, <laughs> are watching you, you it know, slowly? Come yeah. In?
1: No, look, I, I've I don't know if they're gonna. you know, I don't want to use the term. They're gonna write books about this because I'm sure they are. But like, I think you can be sure. It is. That, you know? <laughs> yeah. It is. It is pretty amazing to me that this is something that's never existed as far as I know. Right. And it's something that I highly doubt will ever exist again. Which is a bipartisan committee that really is pulling in the same direction. Have there been squabbles behind closed doors? Of course, right? The, mm-hmm. there's, there's been some disagreements. There will be some disagreements going forward, probably particularly when we start talking about what are some of the fixes, right? And you have mm-hmm. some people that, you know, want to get rid of the electoral college, some that don't. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. That's, that's okay. That should be the case. But the fact that we have all pulled in the same direction to get accountability, has has just blown me away, and I, I'll, I'll give a lot of credit here to, well, to Benny for I think allowing Liz to have such a prominent role because you know as a chairman you could be like look I want to be in the spotlight the whole time I got to give credit frankly to the speaker for putting you know Liz in that position, but she has really done a good job of keeping people together keeping us focused and digging in areas that you know maybe we wouldn't think to dig in otherwise so when that whole story is written she'll come off i think very well and people will see what all she's been able to pull off but this committee is just like this is like an aurora borealis it's like a moment it's a beautiful thing and you may never catch anything like this again
0: so, how different would it have been if Kevin McCarthy oh, had put had, had 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 put his folks on oh. this this committee? Because th- there appears to be a lot of uh, sort of revisionist history now. People going, "No, that was really a terrible idea." Uh, so, I mean, oh. th- this this would have had a completely different feel to it if Kevin McCarthy would have put his his folks on the committee, which he had the opportunity to do.
1: He did. Think of Benghazi too. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, like, imagine on if if there was, like, you know, countering forces or whatever on the committee, you would have Jim Jordan, in essence, or, you know, whoever, Rodney Davis, every five minutes that would go to a, a witness, you would come back and try to discredit the questioner. Mm-hmm. Every uh, subpoena you sent out would have to go through. You know, a battle on the vote like that, partisan vote, go out like this is a very different thing, and it's a bipartisan committee again pulling in the same direction. It is a massive, and and I probably said this on your show when it happened. Like this is a massive mistake by Kevin McCarthy. He thought that when Nancy Pelosi pulled two of the Republican members off the committee, which I I fully am supportive of because they mm-hmm. were they were all in with the insurrection. He could have just appointed two more Republicans and gone on. That was the expectation. Instead, he thought he'd be a little cheeky and pull all his members, and ha-ha, the committee would fall apart. Well, he didn't, you know, account for the fact that there would be two Republicans willing to do it. And, boy, I loved – really one of the best days of the year, honestly, was when Donald Trump came out and attacked Kevin (laughs) for pulling his members. Because you know, you know Trump told him to pull his members, and yet Kevin knows that Trump knows that – and he's still sitting there just taking it like a good boy, like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have pulled him, sir, even though Trump told him to do it. It is pathetic. But, you know, it's where we are.
0: Well, that was a tell. I mean, that was certainly a tell that Donald Trump uh, was realizing that this was cutting through in some way and that people were oh, yeah. actually watching this on television. So talk to me a little bit about uh, the t- timeline for the committee. Um Initially, there had been uh, suggestions that uh, there would be a final report in September. We're now learning—well, you, you correct me on this—that that's going to be a preliminary report. What's happening? Is—is is it because more people are coming forward? New information is coming forward. What what is now the timeline for the final final report of this committee?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's all of that. So initially, the expectation was kind of we'd we'd have these hearings. We'd have all the information, at least as much as we could get, put out the report. And we are seeing new witnesses coming forward, kind of opening... This is opening new pockets, new channels. And so I think, you know, we still want to have at least a preliminary report out in September. It may not end up being all that much different from a final report. Mm -hmm. But the big point is, as we shift a little to writing the report, we don't want people to think that this is the end of the investigation because the charter for the committee... You know, would expire. Assuming probably mm-hmm. a safe assumption that Republicans are going to take the majority, uh, it will expire at the end of this Congress. So in January, you know, so we we do have a limited timeline, but we want to make sure people understand that we're going to continue to track down, in essence, every lead, every person, every answer we can until we can't anymore. I truly have no more information than you do about what the DOJ is up to, but that could you know, change anything. It certainly seems like they are uh, a lot more active in terms of looking into this stuff. But yeah, we uh, hope to have this uh, preliminary report out. Again, it may not differ much, but we're going to run through the tape, particularly as if we think we could still get more information.
0: Well, there have been some indications of a little bit of uh, frustration among uh, committee members about the pace of the Department of Justice investigation. Are you satisfied that they are moving expeditiously and forcefully enough on this?
1: Well, so it's hard to tell. So I think up until really we started the hearings, I was very frustrated with Mm -hmm. DOJ. Uh, You know, I think when the story's told, maybe the hearings is what kind of lit a fire under the DOJ a little bit uh, because they started to see the evidence we had. But yeah, i had been frustrated. I've been frustrated that Dan Scavino and Mark Meadows, they were in contempt of Congress, but they haven't been held that way by DOJ. So I I think we'll have to see, you know, when they raided Jeffrey Clark's place, it was Mm -hmm. like right around the time we did the hearing too uh, on Jeffrey Clark. Those are some good signs that they're looking into this stuff. So I guess I'll be able to answer that better at some point in the future. Uh, It does seem like They're staffing up. They're moving forward on it. And I think that's what the American people want to know. I've heard you say this, and I think Mm -hmm. it's 100% true, which is, yes, we don't want to be a country that prosecutes the last administration. But if we let an administration get away with what the last administration tried to get away with, or frankly, got away with, I, I cannot imagine how this democracy survives long term because we just have to be able to say, look, we're not going to prosecute the last administration for political differences but we have to for straight up coup attempts.
0: What about Steve Bannon? Let's just talk about him because, of course, that trial is wrapping up. Uh, you know, my my sense is there's zero chance that Steve Bannon would ever testify, you know, give you any valuable testimony at at all, but it's important to make an example of him. I mean, where does he figure into all of this? I mean, obviously, he's a major player. He knows a lot of things. He could provide information, but what what is the significance of Steve Bannon for your investigation?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, he, uh, and I've got to be careful what I say, because at mm, the trial, yeah. he likes to take everything we say and say, here, look, mm, right. he obviously kind of straddled both worlds, like the federal world and the campaign world a little bit. We basically requested information from him. It was very straightforward. Come in, tell us what you know, which hundreds and hundreds of witnesses have been able to do, and he just refused to do it. And so at his trial, the question is basically, Did you get a lawful subpoena? Did you react to the subpoena? In terms of where we go from here, we'll have to see what happens there. But, uh, you know, I I think there was information or he could have come in and pled the fifth. There's any number of things he could have done that he didn't. And so he's now going to have to face that with the jury and judge. All right. So
0: what is the end game here? Is it legislation? Is it going to be criminal charges? And the reason I'm bringing up criminal charges, I think you and I discussed this some months ago. You know, there was a little bit of a of a kerfuffle about whether or not the committee would make a a formal criminal referral. Tell me whether you agree with this. That now that seems to be pretty much beside the point because essentially the entire all of your hearings have been a criminal referral. I mean, whether you make it or not, it doesn't. I mean, the whole process feels like it's a criminal referral.
1: Yeah, I mean that's exactly right. That's where it's kind of been a frustration that all this like criminal referral questions. I don't even know where it started. it's kind of an invented thing. So, you okay. know, DOJ obviously knows what we know and they're they're investigating it whether we send them a piece of paper, quote unquote, referring or not really won't have much basis. That said, you know, we still may do it because uh just I think to make the point, but where do I think this goes from here? I think probably a decision like that would be maybe a little later in the summer or fall. Uh, As we get towards, you know, wrapping up the information that we currently have, we're taking new info at all times. And so yeah, I think that's where we have to go from there. So I think we'll see what Department of Justice does. I think secondarily, we're going to look and say, here's what we need to do to fix Congress at the moment. So even if it's something as basic as the Electoral Count Act, we can at least put a roadblock in what they knew would work right now, right? right. Uh, Like, even if it's just for guarding 2024, that's great. Let's do that. And, uh, and I think the biggest thing is just showing the American people the truth. You know, I think we're all waiting for this kind of moment where there's something. but you know, the truth is it's always kind of awkward to say, how do you end these things? And it's just the American people knowing the truth is very important. Well, this has been
0: one of the, the strengths, I think, of the committee is that it has laid out in, in great detail the fact that there was just no evidence to support the big lie. And you had, you know, one Republican after another, Bill Barr being the most prominent, you know, you know, testifying that he told the president it was bullshit. There was nothing to it. These conspiracy theories were insane. And so that that's the good news. But I I wanted to get your reaction to this, though, you know, because as you go through this and it has been documented over and over and over again, still on the split screen, you have what happened in Maryland or you see what's happening in Arizona around the country where Republicans continue to nominate candidates who embrace the big lie that you have this QAnon adjacent candidate who's nominated for governor of Maryland. Um, You know, in Pennsylvania, same thing Uh, in uh, in Arizona, the state's party executive committee censured the House Speaker Rusty Bowers, who testified about the election uh, before your your committee. So so even as the case becomes absolutely airtight that this was a free, fair, legitimate election, you still have tens of millions of Republicans that are not only believing the opposite, but they're willing to rather aggressively support that position. I mean, how, how do you, how do you reconcile? Is, is is that why you're kind of feeling Dr. Doom today?
1: Yeah. I mean, like, look, I think I am feeling a little Dr. Doom. I, I recognize that like the party's in a, this weird moment where I, I don't know if truth really matters to some people. Yeah. I don't know if they, you know, if you tell, if you put them down, like, you know, short of Jesus himself comes down and says, look, here's the truth. If like the lies have become more of a, just a tattoo of your belonging. But I know this, that ultimately truth will win. At least it has. And, uh, we're going to go through, you know, 2022 may be a nasty election cycle just in terms of the big lie growing. I mean, look at Illinois, Illinois, you know, Mary Miller, right. Uh, Mm -hmm you know, Darren Bailey, that kind of stuff. This is Illinois who usually puts up some pretty good candidates that can win statewide. Mm -hmm. I think 2022 will be tough, but I think this big impact could be in 2024. I mean, the reality is what we have to do, I think, as people is quit as leaders. First off, first, first you have to lead. You have to actually be a leader. But secondly, I I think it's about your constituents, the people that you represent, even if you're not in an elected position the people that you kind of care for they're being lied to they're being abused and if you feel good about lying to and abusing people that's fine right I and mean, it's not fine but it's that's your choice but if you think that people that put their trust in you actually deserve to 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 hear the hard truth then you've got to you've got to lead them and i got to tell you charlie this isn't some I think the whole what's going on in the Republican Party is not some mysterious question about how have these people been so misled. It's really just that there have not been leaders that have countered Donald Trump. You know, you can can have Liz Cheney and I and a few others, and you can easily demonize us because we are the aberrant ones. We're the ones that are different than everybody else. But if we would have had Kevin McCarthy never go down to Mar-a-Lago, if we'd have had Mitch McConnell say, I am voting yes to remove mm-hmm. Donald Trump, uh, we'd be in a much different position. And now we just cower back and say there's nothing we can do. Well, you know, it's like we always use the Flight 93 thing, but it's, it's true in this case. you got to have a bunch of people stand up in charge of the cockpit in order to save. Because if, if just Todd Beamer would have stood up, you're not going stop to the, stop these guys. And so people have got to stand up.
0: You made an interesting point about whether or not people believe the lies or not, or whether or not the lies simply become this tattoo of identity. And And I, I think that's important to understand, is that we might assume that people would resent being lied to or care about whether something is accurate or not accurate, true or false. But but for a lot of people, it's just simply kind of the the you know the jersey they wear because this is the tribe they have chosen. And in order to stay in that tribe, they have to wear the jersey. So, you know, every once in a while I'll get asked with people like, do, do you think that so-and-so sincerely believes X, Y, or Z? And and my answer is that seems like a category error. <laughs>
1: you know, yeah.
0: whether I mean who knows whether they sincerely believe it. They just have decided that they they have to go along with it. And, and I think that's important to understand that there is that mentality out there.
1: I think it's true. And I think also, you know, I, I've, I've thought a lot about fear, you know, particularly with what I've kind of confronted here the last few years. But like, what, what is people's greatest fear? And I always thought, you know, like maybe it's death. I actually think people's greatest fear is not so much death. It's like being kicked out. It's mm-hmm. being like excommunicated. It's not having a tribe. You know, you've gone through what I've gone through where mm-hmm. we've kind of lost our tribe. Um, it's not fun. And it really does cut to the, to the depth of your psyche. But, you know, we both have strong families and we're able to kind of hold on to that. If you have people that literally, they don't have a strong family backing and the only thing that gives them purpose and point is this kind of, we'll call it a cult, but this, this like identity, this tribe, if you threaten to take that away, and by the way, if you come out and say that the election was legitimate, you will be kicked out of that tribe. Or you say, hey, there's some reasonable things we can do about the Second Amendment. You'll be kicked off that Second Amendment Facebook group. That's the thing you fear the most, even more than death, I think, for most people.
0: I think that's true. So quoting the New York Times again this morning, they have a profile of, of your colleague Liz Cheney, and she's quoted as saying, I believe this is the most important thing I've ever done professionally and maybe the most important thing I ever do. Do you feel the same way, Adam, about what you're doing and what you're going to be doing tonight? I think on a professional,
1: yes. You know, it's there's moments where it kind of sits in like, wow, this is somewhat historic. Other times you're in the malaise of kind of everyday doing something. Mm-hmm. I, I think after tonight, it probably will set in a little bit more. It's like, look, whatever this... Uh, this democracy, this Republicans up being after this uh, is now out of my control, but I will have been, God has put me in a place. uh, And I say this to all those Christian nationalists that somehow believe that, you know, Donald Trump is the new God. God has put me in a place to counter that narrative and, uh, and to just be clear that look, no matter how angry you are, no matter how much or how good a cheap political thrill feels at the moment, a cheap political win, Uh, An enduring democracy is the legacy you leave for your kids. And and I think it is apropos, frankly, that I just had my first kid who's, you know, six months old now. He's pretty awesome. But I know that when he reads about this point in history, whatever grade they insert this into in the history lesson, he will not be ashamed to be a Kinzinger. And that means something to me Uh, because I think there are a lot of people out here whose kids would be very ashamed to be, you know, have their last name after this is all written.
0: Well, Adam Kinziger, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast on this uh, rather extraordinary day, and we will be watching tonight.
1: You bet. Anytime I enjoyed it, thank you. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio
0: production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow we'll do this all over again.